Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We had an interesting event last night, at least last night for me. It was an afternoon for you. Um, We just want to mention this briefly because Jeff and I have both written books for Take Control Books. Uh, Going back to 2003, it was the 20th anniversary, and the current proprietor of Take Control Books set up a, I guess, a Zoom conference call with Chuck Joyner, who recorded it for his Mac Voices podcast. Is it a vodcast? Vodcast podcast? It's video and audio. I just say podcast, even though he does video and audio. So, yeah. Yeah. And there were a dozen of us talking about our memories of Take Control Books. And the reason we want to mention it is because every Take Control book was on sale for $5. Unfortunately, when you hear this um, podcast, it'll be too late. The sale's only for a few days. But it was interesting to look back at some of the experiences that go back to 2003, when Tanya and Adam Enk started Take Control Books, um, the process of publishing. We'll put a link in the show notes to the video of Mac Voices, where you can hear Jeff and I and some other people talking about this, particularly because Jeff has a book about photos. Uh, yes, well, I have, I have uh, the, you know, the digital uh, take control of your digital photos. Um, I mean, I think uh, between the two of us, we have what eight current titles. I have so, four currently in print, have, in print, in, in, in quotes, print, yeah, because they're yeah. not in print; they're yeah. eBooks. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, take control has been this this great experience, and even though yeah, the the sale is going to be done by the time you listen to this, but. Uh, definitely go check it out at Take Control Books. Again, uh, links in the show notes. But part of the reason we're bringing this up is because part of the discussion was talking about customer, like respecting the customer, respecting the reader, and giving them information that was beyond just the, I'm just going to say it, the crappy help that a lot of applications and devices give you. And I think that's the secret of take control, which is, I mean, it's right there in the name. You're taking control of a subject and guiding the reader through this. And it's something that, I mean, literally, even this morning, this afternoon, today, we have run into trying to find the answers (laughs) to something and just begging begging for good information, and it's hard to find. It's amazing. So we have a couple of disparate topics for the podcast today, and one of them is going to be talking about my Google phone. Um, For various reasons, I bought a Google phone to supplement my iPhone 14 Pro. I did not upgrade to the 15. We can say it here now. Kirk is shifting to Android. He's abandoning the (laughs) Mac. He's done with iOS. He's tired of Apple. Uh, He's going to sell all his gear. Oh, wait. No, no. Those are different. Those are different uh, YouTube channels. Sorry, sorry, I, I got all caught up in the 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 switcher mentality. Yeah, no, actually, it's for a project where we're going to write a few articles comparing Android and iPhone, um, maybe how to switch from Android to iPhone, things like that. And I haven't had a Google phone in years. I had a cheap Android phone five years ago, and again to write an article. I wrote an article for MacWorld back in the day. This was an older Android phone. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to that. Uh, and an article I wrote about the Windows phone. So uh, the first one was something like an iPhone user discovers Android, and the second was an iPhone user discovers Windows phone. 
I really liked Windows Phone. I liked the the tile interface that they had. I thought it was great. And back then, this was 2014, 2015. So it was pretty early in terms of Android's maturity. Um, and it was at the end of Windows Phone because it only lasted a year or two after that. And I haven't really known enough about Android to be able to compare what the iPhone can do. And, and when I looked at some of the specs on this Android phone, so it's the Pixel 8, not the Pixel 8 Pro, um, a lot of the specs were pretty close to what the iPhone does. And a lot of the features are very similar. And, you know, w we watch these high production value keynotes that Apple does, and we see all these wonderful magical features. And then, then I went to look at the Google presentation for their new products this year. And it was done in what looked like a tiny studio with maybe 100 people, maybe 50, um, with a tiny stage with a couple people coming out. The production values looked like a high school production. It's really weird for a company <laughs> that size that they couldn't do anything better. They had a couple of videos, but it was mostly, you know, here's Tom to talk about this. And Tom comes out and talks about this and he's got a screen by his side and they're showing some things. And every once in a while, the audience applauds and you can tell – that it was forced applaud, that there was an applause light like in a TV studio above them. It's really weird. I'll, I'll link to a YouTube video about it. Anyway, so here's the thing. The iPhone, the Google phone, Pixel 8, has a 50 megapixel standard camera, right? So it's got two cameras, a wide and an ultra wide, like the normal iPhone non-pro. Um, and the normal one is 50 megapixels. So I naturally set it to shoot RAW and JPEG. And I just got this phone a few days ago. We had a lull in the flooding rain yesterday. So I went out, just snapped some photos, just to have photos to look at. And I came back and I looked at them and the raw photos were all blurry and I couldn't figure it out. And I showed them to Jeff and we started talking. And it turns out that it doesn't shoot in 50 megapixels, that it's got a 50 megapixel sensor, but it uses pixel binning. But that doesn't explain why it's blurry. And we'll put a pair of these photos in the show notes so you can see. Um, Jeff's comment was it looks like there's humidity or condensation on the lens. And that's exactly what it looks like. And I can't understand why it's so ugly. Well, and what's bizarre about that, and again, uh, look in the show notes or, or look uh, if you're Listening to this on a podcast player that will show images, we'll put those in line. I would expect that if it was like a condensation issue, you would also see that in the JPEG because it's not like you took a JPEG and you switched to RAW and then you took a, a RAW. Like it, it, both images were captured at the same time. And the right. JPEG, although it looks a little over sharpened, I think that's kind of par for the course these days for for JPEGs. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't sh exhibit any of that 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 weird sort of like almost ghosting uh, mm. effect, and I can't explain it. I believe that with the with the Google phones, they're just shooting a a raw image. It's not like Apple, where if you're shooting a raw from the camera app, you get an Apple Pro raw, which is the raw image, but Apple also does some processing to it to give you that 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 extra, you know, computational photography magic combination. And so I believe that this is really just the raw image. Yeah, in the in the presentation they talked about some of the computational photography. Um they have some neat features actually. There is a feature where let's say you're taking a bunch of pictures of a group of people and in the first picture, let's say you got four people. One person's blinking and another one's yawning and another one doesn't look good. So what it does is it actually goes through the photos 
and allows you to choose which face you want for each person. So it's kind of cutting the faces out and moving them around. It, it's actually clever use of AI. In fact, in the Google presentation, they, they talked about AI all the time, the two letters that Apple didn't mention at all when they <laughs> presented the iPhone 15. So there are some nifty features. But if it can't shoot raw photos, if it can't shoot 50 megapixels as advertised, I want to know how they can advertise a 50 megapixel camera. Thing. It shoots in 50 megapixels. Yeah. So part of this, too, is that I mean, I think we spent 15, 20 minutes just searching online and have come up with it. And of course, it's not spelled out anywhere that we can see. It seems as if the the eight is pixel binning and that's all you get. So it does have a 50 megapixel sensor, but you're ending up with a you know 12 or 16 megapixel 12, 12 and a half, apparently. 12 and a half. This is and, what I'm seeing in a couple of Reddit threads. Yeah. And if that was made clear, I think that might be slightly better. It's it's the dumb marketing thing where, yes, it is a 50 megapixel sensor. But apparently, if you have the 8, you cannot get 50 megapixel images. Uh, I think we ran into something where... If you do some sort of weird system hack, you can access it, but not going to even go there. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, that's not how it works. I, this isn't Linux. I didn't buy um, a Google phone to start installing things, which, you know, one of the first things I did is I wanted to get more familiar with Android, and I learned that there are Android launchers. So basically the, the equivalent of the Finder, right? Um, so you can change the way uh, icons display and and all the controls you have. It's like – this is Linux. This is going back to Linux window managers and stuff. And, <laughs> and it's it's understandable because Android is a sort of Linux, right? Um, deep down, I think. Sure, sure. Yeah. So there is quite a great deal of customization you can do with an Android phone, and that's interesting. But I'm really disappointed that they lied about the camera. This was a lie. You lied to me, Google. Um I didn't buy the Pro Camera, so I explained to Jeff, I traded in my old iPhone SE 2. I got 190 pounds for trade-in. The Google Pixel 8 was 699. I thought, well, that's a pretty good price for a, an almost flagship telephone, right? Yeah. Um, but the Pro model is 999, so 300 pounds more, and you get more than just the 50 megapixel camera. There's a few other features, but not that much. It's a bigger display. Um, it looks to be about the size of the... Pro Max display, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not paying 300 pounds more because of deceptive advertising. I may end up returning this phone. Uh, I'm yeah. going to decide. I didn't buy it for the camera, but I did think, well, it'd be nice to have another 50 megapixel camera along with my iPhone 48 megapixel Sure, that, you know, that takes good pictures. And so I'm a little bit confused. We'll also link in the show notes to a review by Chris Nichols. Uh, for Petapixel, where he reviewed the Pixel 8 Pro. I actually haven't watched it yet. Jeff mentioned it. Um, And I'm going to email Chris and ask if he knows about this 50 megapixel thing, because this is is dishonest. It's really dishonest. Yeah. Well, and I think what I find interesting about this is because this is Google making their own hardware, their own phones. It's not like Samsung using Google's operating system and like all – like and the way – the Pixel phones have always been presented. These are the, I, I guess for lack of a better word, like the reference models. This is what all the other camera makers should aspire to. At least that's how they've been pitching this. And it's it's just curious 
why they would have this limitation because as we also figured out, it has the same processor. So it's not like the Pixel 8s can't do large raw files or anything like that. Uh, it seems to have the same camera hardware except for the addition of the telephoto lens on the Pro. So it seems like it is strictly a software limitation possibly just put in there so that you – well, I can I think of two reasons. Uh, one is give you a good reason to upsell to the pro or but But no, space. it doesn't upsell because you think you're buying the 50 megapixel camera already. So you're not yeah, upselling because you see that. Um, it starts at 128 gigabytes, which is like the iPhone. So space-wise, mm. yes, it's going to take more space, but it's not that much of a problem. The, the only thing I could think of – is maybe the non-pro is using slower memory. Oh. And so then it's got a right to whatever they call the equivalent of the SSD in a phone, right? The mm-hmm. Whatever the memory chip. And maybe it doesn't have fast enough memory to write a raw file. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they've skimped on that. But that's not a big saving uh, when you talk about phones, when they're making millions of phones. Yeah. Strange, strange. Well, and it's also strange because in addition to these being the reference models, the Google phones have been the ones that people will compare photographically to the iPhones. And you'll see lots of you know various, well, this year's Google phones are much better than the iPhones in you know X, Y, and Z features, and some people will prefer the iPhone look. But basically, these are the flagship models. These are the things that will give you good images with the latest technologies baked in and all of that. And apparently they're just like, no, I guess if you get the eight, you're going to save some money and it's not going to take up as much space in your, in your device. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's kind of confusing. Um, the wire cutter has an article that was just updated last week and they're talking about the best Android phones and their choice is the pixel eight. The regular mm-hmm. Pixel 8. They're not, they talk about the Pixel 8 Pro as an upgrade. They point out that the Pixel 8 Pro has a larger OLED screen, a higher resolution and refresh rate, as well as a 5X telephoto camera. They don't really say anything about the 50 megapixel thing here. And I kind of wonder if no one's noticing, if no one cares enough to notice, right? That That's yeah. a little bit weird, the way... That Google's putting it over on people and that unless they're photographers or, or photo reviewers that they're not going to notice, I think that maybe that's why all the reviews I've seen are of the pro and not of the standard model because that's the one that they're sending out to all the photo websites and photo reviewers. Well, and the photo reviewers are going to be more interested in those features anyway. So I think they're just making that assumption that if you are serious about your photos versus just being more casual about it then you're going to want the pro, I'm guessing. Okay, that's enough for this topic. And you want to talk about some Photoshop magic too. Well, yeah. So one of the things that also happened in the last couple of weeks, Adobe had its big Adobe Max event. And that's basically where they refresh all their their applications. And this year, actually, I'll, I'll put a link to the show notes. I wrote something for DP Review talking about what's new in uh, Adobe Lightroom. But... For the most part, the event was really, really focused on AI and particularly on Adobe Firefly, which is their generative artwork engine technology, like base 
whatever you want to call it. it the thing that lives in the cloud that makes images. But it can <laughs> also do – the <laughs> generative tools for making uh, like line art and vector art and things like that. So a couple things I wanted to point out. One, so Adobe Firefly, uh, which we talked about way back in you know an earlier episode. Again, link in the show notes. Uh, this is their technology for entering a text prompt, and it'll just give you whatever you want. And I think sometimes it's been amazing. Sometimes it's been less than amazing. And so now they have Firefly 2, the very interestingly named Firefly 2. Um, <laughs> and a couple of things. The, the, the technology has definitely gotten better. I don't know quite how it compares to like the most recent versions of uh, – uh, Mid Journey or Dolly, but it's much better. And it's now out of its beta phase. So before, when it was mostly just kind of a, a beta technology for people to use and for them to get data on what people are asking for and, and, and just to build it up, you couldn't use it commercially. Now it can be used for commercial projects and and all of that. So that's that's good. You can actually go and you know generate something. But what interests me a lot more is how they've integrated it into Photoshop particularly because my whole thing is it's great that you can just type something and have it generate something from scratch. But I don't know. Like that doesn't interest me nearly as much because you're just – kind of making something. And I'm sure like digital artists can go crazy with that. As a photographer, I'm much more interested in how can I make my photos better? And I'll put a couple of images in the, in the show notes here where you can select an area and have it remove or add things to, to your image. And the the example that I have here is one that I shot at the Seattle Japanese Garden. So if you're not looking at it, it's basically a, a Japanese maple. There's light coming through it. There's a little tiny stream in the foreground, lots of, of, of brush and bushes and leaves that have fallen. And right in the middle and not very large, you can kind of see where there are like three people standing just beyond this is the problem of going someplace where you have actual people. And <laughs> if you look at it initially, you don't see the people, which was great. And then you look at it again, and you're like, oh, damn it, there's, there's people there. And so I thought, well, what would Photoshop do with it? And so I, I literally, I just traced where those people were and I typed in the little generative prompt. Uh, I just said, remove people. Um, you shouldn't have to do that, but sometimes I think that works better. And you know what? It got rid of the people. It rebuilt that that strand of the Japanese maple. And if I did not tell you that this was edited, you would not know. And it really, really impressed me. It blew me away to see this, honestly, because I'm used to – what did they call the thing? The – Generative fill that they have as generative well. Generative fill, yeah. 
And I've seen some of the examples of that, and some of them are really good, and some of them are mediocre. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what works here is that, and if you look at the photo in the show notes, you'll see that you have that branch with the leaves that are lit up by the sunlight, and the people are behind that. So they're not on the same plane of vision, and they're darker. So what works is that someone someone looked at your photo um, up in the cloud and retouched it for you magically and saw that and figured out exactly what to, I'm true. Uh, honestly, it's the kind of thing that you could do manually, right? Um, but the yes. quality of this, the, the ability to do this with, I'm assuming, you know, three clicks um, is really quite stunning. Yeah. And also you cannot discount the fact that it is fast. Like I literally just went in and circled it type the thing and it probably took I think 15 or 20 seconds for it to to do its generation then it gave me three options and I, I picked the, the first one actually looked the best but for anybody who's had to you know grab the clone stamp tool or use the eraser tool like it can be a long lengthy frustrating process and here like I just do it and it did it now one thing that i think is going to be interesting about this, and I want to point to a um, a DP review article that just sort of talked about other things that were announced. Um, one thing about the Firefly technology is it's all built on Adobe's uh, Adobe stock assets. So in theory, you're not going to have problem with uh, copyrights or people's images being used when they shouldn't be used as as the source. There, there are a whole bunch of you know, legal things broiling about this with other other things. Um, Adobe is also adding content credentials when you generate an image, so that you have some sort of way to see whether something has been generated. And then they also have a a pricing scheme, and I don't think it's quite fleshed out yet. But basically. With your uh, your Creative Cloud plan, whichever one that is, uh, and I believe the prices are going up for some of them, um, you basically are going to have like a set number of speedy generations that you're going to be allowed. And once you've passed that, you can either buy more or the, the results that you get are going to be uh, slower. So – it's it's starting to get into that that realm of oh you know what all this stuff that's happening takes a massive amount of computational power and somebody has to pay for it and it's not always going to be adobe it's going to be we the customers well but that's normal because the processing power costs money i could see Wedding photographers using this a lot, right? They're taking pictures of the bride and the groom and someone's in the way. Um, they could get someone out of a photo easily. They can, you know, edit out all the, the cruft that they don't want. So I can see professional event photographers using this a lot. And it's normal that they have to pay for it. I think yeah. for hobbyists, it's not going to be a problem. You're not going to use it often. I mean, you use it on this photo, but how many other photos did you use it on other than just to test? Right. You're generally not taking photos where there's people in the way. Um, I think some people will use this as the X removal tool. So if you have a photo of two people, one wants to get rid of the X. Um, But you could already do that with Photoshop's content fill 
disposal, yeah. whatever it's Content called. Content aware fill, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although this does work a lot better than that because it, it it's actually generating a scene based on what's there rather than trying to use existing pixels to fill it in right. and all of that. Like right. it's 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 super impressive. It's not something that you're going to be using with everything that you edit. And if it is something that you use with everything you edit, then it makes sense that you would need to pay more for it. So one thing that the Google phone has apparently, and I haven't tried this. Again, I just got this a few days ago. Um, you can select and move objects on the phone. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm trying to do this with the church. I have no idea how to do it. I have to, I'll have to find a how-to someplace to take control book. Um, oh, no, here's what one of the problems also. You can't edit raw photos in um, on the phone, which is ridiculous. You have to download a third-party app. Even You can't even crop them. But That's here I've got – so Magic Editor, and I'm tapping this um, Try Now. And I believe this is an AI feature. It is, yeah. So if I tap – if I tap tap and hold selected to move it, I don't have any photos where it's easy to select something. I just took a couple photos of the church, a couple photos of some pumpkins, and I don't know what I'm doing. But this is a feature <laughs> that is <laughs> – Jeff's laughing. I don't know what I'm doing. It's not, it's not intuitive. Um, but this is a feature that's built into the phone, and I think it's a cloud feature, and it yeah. requires cloud access. And they have some other AI features as well. Uh, you can look at the YouTube presentation. It will be in the show notes, and you can laugh at the low production qualities, um, which are really <laughs> quite humorous when you compare it to what Apple does or even what Amazon does. I mean Amazon does an on-stage thing, but it looks more – it looks less like a high school play than – you know, it looks serious. It's kind of weird – in that Petapixel review that you mentioned, Chris Nichols does talk about those features and how they're cool, but they're they're not entirely baked yet. Like if you were to take one of those pumpkins and move it over, the AI technology then like fills in the space where it used to be and makes it look realistic. But apparently what Chris found was it's it's fairly low resolution and it's going to be hit or miss. But they're definitely doing a lot of interesting AI stuff that, I mean, you know, we've seen this with so many other features. It's out. It's new. It's a little It's a little rough, but it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Give, it's give it a better. few months. When did Firefly come out for Photoshop? I want to say a year ago. I think even less. So now that they're Maybe at Firefly less, yeah. 2 um, yeah. and they've made this much progress, uh, you know, we're going at light speed through these AI tools here. Exactly. Should we do snapshots? I don't have a snapshot today. My snapshot is how I'm going to return my Pixel phone, I think. (laughs) Um, Because, no, this is just, I can't. I didn't buy it for that, but this is this gives me a bad taste. Maybe I'll look at a Samsung phone that may have a better camera, may have better options. Uh, yeah. I, I think that Samsung is probably the best in terms of camera other than Google. That's enough. All right. See you next Until time. Until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.